This is your Bible. Say hi, Bible. Nice to meet you, right? Today we're going to start a new series uh, in the Gospel of John. And my goal today really is just to orient us to what we'll be studying over the next few months. So I'm going to start here in the beginning, as John starts his gospel in the beginning. The beginning of your Bibles, uh, the first couple chapters, you'll find some beautiful poetry about a God who lovingly created, invited humanity to walk with him in this pristine place. The next few chapters in your Bible, there in the book of Genesis, are going to tell the story of humanity choosing its own way, diverting from God's intent and plan uh, to walk with them, and you'll read of the sin and the chaos and the hurt that is brought into the world because of humanity's decision. Shortly into your Bible, just the 12th chapter in your Bible, a God who is still intent upon walking in relationship with his beloved creation invites a man named Abraham to a covenant relationship. Abraham is the father of the Israelite people who this Old Testament story unfolds with. Abraham's people become a great nation in Egypt, numerous and powerful before a pharaoh enslaves them. And the Israelite people for some 400 years are enslaved in Egypt before God then calls a man named Moses, go and free my people from bondage, from slavery in Egypt. Uh, Moses is fearful and inequipped for the task, and God says, I will equip you. I will enable you, and in fact, he does. Moses, God through Moses, leads the Israelite people out of bondage in Egypt to Mount Horeb, to the mountain of God, Mount Sinai, it's also called, where they meet with God, where Moses meets with God, where the people see his power. And these Israelite people are invited into covenant relationship with God. He gives them the law. And a good section of your Old Testament there, especially in the first five books of your Old Testament, uh, we can read about the law that God had for Israel, for his people. The story continues as Israel then leaves Mount Horeb after about a year there. And they travel towards Canaan, the promised land. God had promises to Abraham. And they find themselves at the promised land and all sorts of tumultuous experiences and challenges as they uh, rebel against God's intent for them. But eventually, they take the promised land. They are a sovereign nation in this beautiful land that God had promised to them. We read the stories of both their faithfulness and their unfaithfulness, the consequence and the challenges. They rebel against God's will time and time again. God is patient and gracious with them. But eventually, uh, after uh, many years and a number of kings, Israel is conquered by another nation, no longer a sovereign nation. The prophets are coming to Israel throughout this period, and they're saying, but don't give up hope because God is very faithful. And so you can read the prophets in the latter part of the Old Testament. Some 400 years before Jesus comes, uh, the prophets go silent, and uh, Israel is left waiting. In exile, living in other nations, some in incredibly challenging circumstances, waiting on God. When will he show up? And that's where we enter the New Testament and the Gospel of John. As Jesus is born into this world, the prophets had promised a Messiah, a Savior would come into this world. Uh, the King of Israel is coming. There is hope. Don't give up hope. Don't turn your eyes away from God. But that was hard to do in the amount of time they were left waiting upon this Messiah. 
And then Jesus is born into this world, and we'll explore it over the next number of months as we study um, the, the book of John. Jesus is born into this world in humble circumstances, far from what Israel expected or hoped for in this king, in this savior. Jesus did not live up to the expectations. He stood against the Pharisees and the religious leaders whose focus was far more on power or on their intent than on God's plan for his nation or for the world. Since we're two-thirds of the way into the Bible, I'll finish and then we'll come back to John. Um, The book after John is the book of Acts, and that tells the story of the Holy Spirit coming. After Jesus' resurrection and ascension, the Holy Spirit comes in power and the church begins. You can read about that in Acts. Soon this movement that is the church, these people believing Jesus rose from the dead and there is new life found in him, moves beyond the walls of Israel and out into the nations, and we read of missionaries going out to share this good news with all of the known world. Following that, the the majority of the rest of your New Testament is called the letters or the epistles, and these are letters written by church leaders such as Paul, who write to the churches with instruction, with guidance, often referring to specific people in specific towns, talking about the things happening in these churches and guiding these young churches towards what it looks like to live into the way of Jesus in their communities, in in their uh, faith communities, and, and in their communities at large. And the final book in your Bible is Revelation, a vision that John, the author of the book that we'll be studying, uh, receives from God. It's a picture of both what is and what will be in heaven. It's a beautiful picture of hope and unity found in Jesus. So we back up now to the book of John. The first four books in your New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Um, the authorship of John uh, clearly has been attributed through time to a man named John. There is some discussion as to which John this might be uh, that wrote this book, as the author does not identify himself in the text, except to say that he is an eyewitness of Jesus and his ministry and all that happened. So, so the author tells us that. And further, he refers to himself as the apostle whom Jesus loved. Okay, And so historians and early church fathers early attributed this book to John the Apostle. And we'll run with that premise as we continue at this point. So John wrote not only a gospel account, he wrote the letters of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. He also wrote the book of Revelation. He wrote a number of places in the New Testament. Now, it's curious because John, uh, most, most scholars would say, was the fourth gospel to be written. That is, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all were written before him and were widely distributed. So a question begins to arise, why write a fourth gospel when there's already so many out there, right? Now, Matthew uh, wrote with a very distinct purpose. Uh, the, the gospel of Matthew uh, was written to a Jewish audience. So you'll read the first chapter of Matthew and you'll find a genealogy, a long list of names, right? The father of, who was the father of, who was the father of, a long genealogy. And that's because he's writing to a Jewish audience to whom it's very important that we track the lineage of Jesus back to King David, right? So his audience, a Jewish audience, received a very different gospel account, a very different letter than, uh, say, Mark, who was, uh, which was written, we believe, in Rome uh, to an audience that might have been confused by a number of those facts and things in Matthew's gospel, and it's written in a little bit different tone, includes a few different things and omits a few things to be received by the audience to whom it's being written 
We find the Gospel of Luke written, um, often called the Gospel to the Nations. Like it is written with the perspective of a Gentile world that is a non-Jewish world, written to be understood in the context of the people whom it's written to. And finally, then we have John. Why a fourth gospel written? The first three gospels are called the synoptic gospels. That is, they're very similar in nature. Uh, uh, Theologians say about 90% of their material is written together. And there's a couple theories as to why. Uh, Many believe that Mark was the first written, and then when Matthew and Luke wrote their Gospels, uh, they pulled from uh, the the Gospel that had been written by Mark in the beginning. Uh, Other theories revolve around a document that might have existed, um, some writings that had been collected. It's often called Q, the letter Q. and, and so there's a belief that all three of those gospels kind of pulled from this similar place in gospel. And then there's John, which is not one of the synoptic gospels. It is written incredibly different. Most scholars believe that uh, it was written around 90 or 100 AD. That would mean after the fall of Jerusalem. So Israel has now lost their temple in Jerusalem. Uh, further destruction has fallen upon Israel. And John is writing now, not only to an Israelite audience, but to the Gentile audience as well, to the world at large, in a very different season. And he writes very differently than the other authors. Uh, some say that he's combating some false doctrine within the church, and certainly that exists within the Gospel of John. Uh, but most importantly, we'll see as we explore this book that John is writing with a distinct purpose in mind, um, to establish Jesus as God and the means of salvation. Now, there are many different types of writings in this world. Uh, I read different things for different purposes. And we chose in this series to go to the Gospel of John because he does some remarkable and unique things in what he's writing. As to his purpose for writing, uh, we don't have to uh, guess too much at it because in John chapter 20, verse 30, he tells us precisely why he recorded this Gospel. He says, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. John makes clear, I have a purpose in writing. This is not unbiased. This is not simply informational. John tells us, I wrote this so that you might believe. That you might believe that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is the Son of God, and that in believing, you might have life in Jesus' name. John writes in a unique style in this book. His book is poetic. It is, it's a masterful work. It is beautiful the way he weaves together themes and different elements in this book. In one sense, the Gospel of John is extremely simple. And I highly encourage you in the week to come uh, to read the Gospel of John on your own. Don't wait to hear it in pieces here. You will not get the same experience if you don't spend some time in it yourself. Uh, What I'm going to be doing for the next number of months is on a weekly basis, reading through the Gospel of John. It only takes three chapters a day. Uh, So sit down, read the Gospel of John. Sit down one day and read it in its entirety. It might take you an hour and a half. Read through the Gospel and hear this narrative in uh, in its entirety. But uh, he, he writes in a very simple way in one respect. That is, if you have very little experience with church or with the story of Jesus or with Christianity, you will get a pretty clear picture 
of who Jesus is, at least in John's perspective. You will quickly come to understand, okay, I understand what he's claiming about Jesus, right? On the other hand, it's incredibly complex in nature. Uh, The more we read this, by the 10th and 15th time we're reading through this text, I am thoroughly convinced we will be finding more and more in it. We'll be recognizing themes like, why in the world is the first miracle that Jesus performs turning water into wine at a party where everyone's already drunk? Like, what in the world? Why is this? Luke, why did you choose to include this uh, in your story? Um, But we'll start to notice this theme of water comes up over and over start to pick out what in the world does this represent. We'll see the same of light as in 1 John. And John speaks over and over of light. We'll see the theme of bread starting to come out in the text. So John writes in a very unique way in contrast to the other three Gospels, whom uh, include tons and tons of story, tons and tons of conversations and interactions that Jesus has. Uh, many of the conversations with the Pharisees in Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, uh, Matthew, Mark, or Luke, many of them are like a paragraph long, right? Jesus responds in two sentences. You will not find that in John. You will find extended discourse, conversations, detailed interactions, and far less of them than you'll find in the other Gospels. I once heard Tim Mackey, uh, he's the leader of, um, uh, or a participant in, founder of The Bible Project, uh, which I highly recommend. If you'd like to do some background study and, and on your own, The Bible Project or, or Tim Mackey's work is going to be a great place for you to go and find more information on all of this. But I want, once heard him uh, draw this illustration and speak to this point. Uh, he speaks of Rembrandt. I think he's a 17th century, is he Dutch artist? And um, his work is really interesting. All I did here is I just searched Rembrandt, and these are the first eight images that, that came up under him. He's a very famous and well-known artist who did diverse works. But there's something very similar about each of these. Uh, Notice how dark the background is. Now, there's a lot of detail in the background. There's a lot of things going on there. But they're generally dark images with a spotlight shown on something, right? A spotlight shown to draw a a person's uh, attention to a particular place, a particular point within the story or the illustration that he's creating for us. Similarly, uh, John's gospel is going to leave out a lot of stuff. There's, there's a lot left in the dark, and there's some beautiful detail as we go further and further into this book, but understand he is shining a spotlight on a specific element and aspect. He wants us to know without a doubt that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that life is found in him. So he will write his text in that way. All right, a little more information about the book, uh, because I want us to be well-rooted as we go into this in, in what we're reading and why. Uh, the structure of the Gospel of John. Yeah, chapter 1 begins with claims about Jesus' divinity. And further, chapter 1, in chapter 1, we will, John will interest, introduce us to seven names of Jesus. He'll call Jesus by seven different things. The Word of God, the Lamb of God, the Son of God, Rabbi, Messiah, the King of Israel, and the Son of Man. And, and John is leading us towards understanding. He's planting little seeds, little nuggets that these are going to grow as the gospel goes on. But I'd imagine he is incredibly intentional in revealing all these in the very beginning. 
that we might begin to think of Jesus in these vast and diverse ways as then we explore his life and his story. That first chapter claims that Jesus is, uh, the, is, is divine, that Jesus is God in nature, both human and God. This leads us towards the conversation of the Trinity, and we've talked about that real recently. I'm not going to go into detail, but we will as we get into the study. But he makes the claim that Jesus is God in this first chapter. And then the following 12 chapters will lay out seven proofs or signs. He'll then build his case that Jesus is divine, that Jesus is God, based on these seven different proofs. The first I mentioned, water to wine. The second, the healing of an official son. Third, he heals a paralytic. Fourth, he feeds 5,000 people miraculously. Fifth, he walks on water. Sixth, he heals a blind man. And seventh, he raises his friend Lazarus from the dead. So, uh, John will lay out for us these seven different proofs that Jesus is the Son of God. And then the rest of John's gospel, uh, chapters 13 through 21, is going to tell just the final days of his life. Notice how much he's left out of this, right? He says, he is the Son of God here, seven proofs, and now let me tell you about his death, his resurrection uh, from the dead. So uh, the, the latter part is going to be all just those final moments and events that played out in Jesus' life. If you haven't noticed yet, John really likes the number seven, okay? It comes up over and over. It happens in Revelation as well. This number seven. Uh, the, the, next, the other seven that I'll mention today is um, the seven I am statements. Throughout the Gospel of John, we're going to hear Jesus claim the title I am in seven different ways, seven different times in this gospel. The context behind this is incredibly significant. Moses, when called by God, remember to go and free his people from Egypt, he says, no one's going to believe me. Who do I even say sent me? And God gives himself this name Yahweh, which means I am. In the original Hebrew, it would have the connotations of I am who I was and I am who I will be. It is this very simple but very vast name for God that was revered, that was sacred amongst the Israelite people. Yahweh is God. And seven times in this gospel, we will find Jesus claim that title. I am. Jesus making bold claims that eventually will get him killed on a cross. As you can imagine, Israel hearing God, the Pharisees hearing Jesus claim the title of God enrages some and invites others to realize who he is. Throughout the Gospel of John, we'll see these interwoven experiences of, of people receiving or seeing a miracle or hearing his teaching or his claim to divinity. And we'll see these inverse reactions of belief in the life of some and unbelief in the life of others. John is not afraid to tell the full story. Some people embrace Jesus and some people absolutely deny and reject his claims. And we will see these differences, belief and disbelief in the text. So today I want to focus our attention back on John's purpose. He he lays out clearly for us his purpose, that you might believe that Jesus is the Messiah and find life in him. There's this pinnacle moment in Jesus' ministry found in John 14, uh, beginning in verse 11, um, where Jesus is speaking to this idea of belief. He says, believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe on the evidence of the works themselves. 
Very truly, I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing, and they will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father. Jesus, Jesus Christ, he appeals to the audience before him, and John then shares with us this very same appeal. Believe in me. Believe in Jesus. Believe in the works, the evidence that has been displayed And know that you are invited to participate in the good work that God is doing in and through Jesus, in and through the church. Belief. In the Baker Encyclopedia of the Bible, it says, uh, Belief is a, a conviction based on testimony that something is true or that someone is reliable. As used in the Bible, to believe in God involves the element of trust, not mere acknowledgement of his existence. Belief is not merely an intellectual pursuit of coming to believe that God exists or believe that Jesus is who he is, but involves an element of trust. Trust in relationship to this idea of belief means that we give ourselves to something. This belief changes everything. Our journey, of course, does not end at belief, but it is the purpose of John's writing, that we might believe. You know, since the beginning of the church, uh, this this little church plant called the Vine, we um, we had these three words, and in this order: belong, believe, become. Many of you are familiar with this. Um, it's new to some of us. Uh, belong. That is the way Jesus operated uh, was a place of belonging. First, he would call tax collectors and sinners and the most ordinary of his culture, and say, "Come and follow me." And you will experience radical transformation, but follow, walk with me today, now. And so we dreamed of a faith community in which belonging comes first, that we can together in community explore who Jesus is. Uh, believe, of course, the second of those belong, believe, become. We are followers of Jesus. We believe he is the hope for this world. And we invite people as we walk together to believe, to put their faith in him at which point the Holy Spirit continues a beautiful work that had already begun in our lives to bring us into this community, to bring us into these conversations. Transformational work of the Holy Spirit continues as we become whom we were created to be, as we become more like Jesus, because again, there's not an end goal as though one day we have arrived and reached it. So today we talk about belief. We talk about the Gospel of John, his invitation I write this so that you might come to believe in Jesus. Belief is not a one-time transaction, but the journey of a lifetime, a faithful posture in which we continue to put our trust in, to believe in Jesus. There's this remarkable story that I'll finish out with, and it's found in Mark, uh, the Gospel of Mark, chapter 9, 24. And this man is asking Jesus to heal his son. And Jesus says, do you believe and the man replies to him, I do believe, help me overcome my belief, my unbelief. I do believe, help me overcome my unbelief. I find myself in that very prayer today. I, we don't get to a point where all of a sudden it all makes sense. Our faith is perfect. It's been perfected. But instead, daily, we go back to the feet of Jesus. I do believe, help me overcome my unbelief. Help me in this journey as daily I continue to commit, to trust, to walk with, to walk in your ways, Jesus. And the Holy Spirit 
continues to do a remarkable work in our lives, inviting us to know and believe more fully, to trust more fully in our lives. That is the Gospel of John. 